Hey, welcome to the Living the Dream podcast. This is your host, Timmy Douglas, and the goal of this podcast is to create a community that inspires action, accountability, celebrates progress, and helps people make the right connections to take that next step towards their dreams and goals. If you're looking for any one-on-one coaching to pinpoint your purpose and start taking steps in that direction, make sure to contact me on my website, workwithtimmydouglas.com, or on social media. On that note, let's get into the show. All right, what up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Living the Dream podcast. Today on the show, we have Michael Fosberg, who is an author, activist, and actor. Michael, how you doing? Great, Tim. I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Thanks for coming on, and we like to jump right in. So if you could start with telling us a little bit more about yourself and what you'd like to do for fun, that'd be great. Well, I'm going to hit you with a huge, big story right off the top of the bat. Let's let's go, go there. Let's go there right away because um, my story is compelling, and I think you will find it very interesting, as will your listeners. And uh, I, I, uh, I was I was raised in a working class white family by a, a biological mother who was of Armenian descent and a and a, an adoptive stepfather who was of Swedish descent. And when I was in my early 30s, my parents. Uh, unceremoniously <laughs> announced that they were getting a divorce. Oh, and I realized in that phone call um, that uh, I didn't know who my biological father was. My mother had never told me anything about my biological father. Again, I grew up with these two people. I knew my, I knew my dad at the time was not my biological father, but I was so young when this all took place that I never asked any questions and I just sort of went along for the ride. My parents then had two kids and now I had a new, you know, nuclear family. And so we, you know, I grew up with that, but here I was in my early thirties, they announced they were getting a divorce. And I was like, Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Who, what, Whoa, who's my biological father. I started thinking about all these thoughts and actually I didn't actually verbalize that to my mom (laughs) until I had some encouragement from a girlfriend at the time. I had a British girlfriend at the time. And she told me a story about her, um, growing up in her family and about her, how her father um, uh, accidentally killed himself. He was trying to repair a, a vacuum cleaner and he electrocuted himself because the vacuum cleaner was still plugged in and he was working with the wiring. And she walked in as a little girl, as a little five-year-old girl and found her father dead on the floor. Oh my! Terrible God. story. Horrific story, right? Yeah. So she told me this story and she's like, I never had a chance to grow up with my biological father nor did you for different reasons, but now maybe you have an opportunity to go out and search for him and to find him. And so you need to start by asking your mom some questions. And obviously she was right. So I called up my mom and I asked her, you know, I wanted to know about my biological father. And she gave me two bits of information. She told me his name was John Sidney Woods. And that the last time she had spoken with him, which was some 30 years prior, that he had lived in the Detroit area. And that's all she gave me. That's all the information she gave me. So armed with that information, this was quite a while ago. This is, this is the age before we use the internet for everything. Yep. <laughs> I, went, I went to the library because I was living in Santa Monica, California, because libraries had a phone book section. Remember phone books? Nobody remembers phone books. So, <laughs> Yeah, I remember them from when I was like two. Yeah, exactly. I'm aging myself. I'm dating myself right now. So I went to the library. They had phone books. They had a phone book section. And I looked up in the phone book, the Detroit phone book. I thought, what are the chances that my dad still lives in Detroit? This is is the only clue I had. So I got the Detroit phone book. I looked up John Sidney Woods. There are about five listings for John Woods. I copied them all down. I raced home. I was living in an apartment at the time that was about as big as this screen that you see me. And it was tiny. And I paced back and forth, just trying to get the courage to pick up the phone and dial the first number on the list. I kind of went through this machinations of what questions should I ask, you know, if someone answers the phone, you know. So finally, I got the courage, picked up the phone, dialed the first name on the list. A guy answers the phone. I was like, okay, now what? (laughs) And I said, um, uh, excuse me, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for a John Sidney Woods. And he said, you're speaking with him. The first and I was call. like, okay, well, wait, wait, it can't be that easy, right? It can't be that easy. So I said, well, were you living in the Boston area in 1957? Because this is where I lived with my mom and my dad. And he kind of paused and he said, yes. I did. 
And then I was like, oh, no. And I was like, okay, well, were you married to an Armenian woman? My mom was of Armenian descent. I said, were you married to an Armenian woman by the name of Adrian Pilipposian? That was my mom's maiden name. And he he paused again, which seemed like an hour. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, yes, I was. And I was, oh my, I like discovered my dad in the first phone call after 30 years. I was like shocked and elated. And I I blurted out, my name is Michael Fosberg and I'm your son. And, and I was like, not sure what was going to happen. And, you know, I'd heard these horror stories about kids who had found their parents after many years missing. And then the parent didn't want anything to do with them. And, you know, all of a sudden, so he said, no, 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 son, my God, how are you? Where are you? And, you know, I said, I'm living in Los Angeles and living near the beach, blah, blah, blah. We started talking and, you know, trying to wrap our heads around. You're my dad. I'm your son. How do we talk? What do we say? 30 years. I haven't talked to you. And then out of the blue, he says to me, you know, son, there's a couple of things you should know. I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I'm like, okay. I mean, aside from not telling me about you, I mean, yep. what, else, what else could there be? And he says, well, first of all, I want you to know that no matter what you were told or what you thought happened, I've always loved you. And I've thought about you a lot. And this was my dad telling me for the first time in my life that I can remember that he loved me. And I was so elated. And then he said, there's one other thing I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I said, what? And he says, I'm African-American. And I got to tell you, Tim, I was standing in this little tiny apartment, this one room apartment. And he said that to me. And there was a there was like a full length mirror across the room from me. I kind of looked, I took a glance at myself in the mirror, like, whoa, did I just change? Like, what just happened? And then he went into like, your great great grandfather was a member of the 54th Regiment in the Colored Infantry Unit in the Civil War. Your, your grandfather was a, your great grandfather was an all-star pitcher in the Negro Leagues. Your grandfather was a genius in the science and engineering departments at Norfolk State University are named after him. And I was, I was, I was like, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Can we go back to the black part? Because I'm still trying to wrap my head around the black part, right? Okay. You're giving me all this history. And, and we, we swore that we'd stay in touch. We exchanged phone numbers. And um, that's how I met my father and how my life took a different trajectory from that moment on. Um, it was a couple of weeks later that I got, a, I got awoken at about six in the morning by a phone call with a deep Southern rich voice, my granny calling me to wake me up and saying, where the hell you've been? We expected you 10 years ago. Mm. And we talked and we, we had this incredible conversation. And, uh, and then a week after that, I got a little care package in the mail from her, um, which had photographs of her holding me as a baby and my grandfather and, and my dad and all of that. And then there was a little tissue wrapped object in that box. And in that tissue, when I unwrapped it, it was my baby shoe. My granny had kept my baby shoes all these years. She kept one on our bedside tables. She sent the other one to me. And, um, and that's, that's how my story took off. That's how my, my life just changed when I was in my early thirties. And what happened with all of this story was, you know, I started to, I, well, I've been an actor. I was trained as an actor my, my entire life. I, I, I went to an acting school. I was in plays and theater all my life. I did um, shows here in Chicago with many of the reputable theater companies here and all across the country. And, um, but I also was a writer and I wanted to write this into a story. I thought, oh man, this is going to make an incredible story, right? It'll make a great book, right? Yeah. So I started writing the stories about all of these things that happened to me, all this journey that I was going on. And then one day I was asked to read the stories to a group of people. And so I read, I picked about five or six stories and I, I read them much like I just told you and your listeners the story today. And after I finished, people came up to me and they were crying and they were laughing and they were like, oh my God, you need to be doing this. And I said, yeah, I am. I'm writing the book. And they said, no, 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 you should be performing it. And again, as I said, I was a trained actor. I've been in in the theater all my life. I never thought about doing a one-man show before, but I thought, wow, maybe I should, maybe I should put this in a one-man show. You know, I do character work and all that stuff. So I, I put it together. I assemble it together into a show. I got a director, a theater, some producers, and we put it together into a show and I opened it in, uh, actually our first day of rehearsal was 9-11 the morning of 9-11, right after the towers fell. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. Crazy, crazy, right? But it was, it was, it was prophetic because we all gathered together, all shaken by what had happened in our country that morning. And we read the script over and we just realized that this story had the power to heal, to help people heal and to talk about identity, about who we are, how we see ourselves, how we look at other people. And so I put it together, we, we, we launched it, we opened it in October of 2001, and it just took off. I mean, it just took off. People were clamoring for it, news media, writing about it, stories all over the place. And then I started to, uh, I took it on tour for a little bit to a couple of different theaters. I took it to the Missouri Repertory Theater, actually Kansas City Repertory Theater. And it was this big, I, you know, this big thing, this big theater. I did it there. And one of the things that I thought would happen was, wow, well, now I'm going to, you know, go off Broadway or whatever it might be. We went to New York and we were met with a lot of um, resistance. And there's a, there's a, that's a whole, that's a whole other story. That's a whole other podcast. So we won't get into that. So I thought, well, okay, maybe it's time to move on to the next chapter as a, as a freelance writer, director, teacher, you know, now it's time to, you know, I don't know, maybe go and do a, a small part in a TV show or work on a radio show or whatever it might be, you know. Um, and then I was asked to do the play for a group of high school students one day. And, um, and I did the play for them. These were all theater students that were enrolled in a special theater training program at Northwestern University. There were about 160 students and they were from high schools all across the country. And I did the show for them and it was incredible. Standing ovation, the kids went wild over it, it was great. And afterwards, like you would do at a program like this, you, the, the, the artist the, being me would sit and answer questions by the theater students. And usually you'd expect questions like, you know, how did you decide to do the character like that? Or how did you decide to do the blocking, move around on stage or put the music in here or, 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 or include this story or not include that story or whatever it might be. And instead of asking me those questions, they asked me, what box do you check off on applications? And why is race so important? And why aren't we talking about it? And how can we go about having more conversations about it? Yeah. And I realized, oh my gosh, this has all this resonance about race and identity with high school students. This is really important. And so I decided to, well, a couple of them afterwards asked me if I would come to their schools. And so I went to their schools that year. I got paid to go to their schools, do the play, and then conduct this dialogue after the play and talk about race and identity. And it was, you know, incredible. People opened up and talked about, you know, how they felt slighted or, 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 or they felt racism in their schools or whatever that might be. And we had these incredible conversations. The next year, I doubled that number of schools. The next year, I got invited to go and do it at a couple of colleges. And then I started to find myself in the college market. And then I started to arm myself with all the information that I could possibly get my hands on about race, identity, diversity, and inclusion. I read books. I studied things. I, I just wanted to be prepared to have a really fulfilling conversation after each show so I could give kids, give students important information, meaningful conversations. And then I was at a college, a business college, one night, and there, and I did the show, and I did, I conducted the dialogue, and it was really incredible. And afterwards, there are all these people from these corporations that were in the area, and they were there, and they came up to me afterwards. They would you come and do this for our for our our employees? And I was like, Are you kidding me? Are you going to pay me? Yeah, absolutely, I'll come and do it for your employees. This would be great. And so I got my foot into the to the, to the business market, into doing it for corporations, and then gradually I moved into doing it for for government agencies. I've, I've done it for the Department of Homeland Security, for ICE, for the Department of Treasury, for different city governments across the country. Um, I've done it for law firms, for um, realty associations, all different kinds of associations and, and organizations. And again, conducting these dialogues afterwards. And through the course of all this journey, I published my memoir uh, called Incognito, an American Odyssey of Race and Self-Discovery. And then um, just at the beginning of the pandemic, I published a second book, which wasn't a good time to publish, by the way. <laughs> it is called, um, it's called Nobody Wants to Talk About It. Race, identity, and the difficulties in forging meaningful, meaning, meaningful conversations. And so I, I know you asked for my story. <laughs> I'm sure you weren't expecting that story, but that's my story. That's how my life story became my life's work. 
And that's what I've been all about 24 seven since 2001. There we go. There yeah. we go. I love yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> that is a fascinating story. You're right. And I, I think, <laughs> um, it's all very shocking, but the most shocking part is that you found your dad on the first call. Yeah. Like absolutely yeah. blew my mind when you talked about that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and frankly, I mean, I was blown away. He was blown away. Um, I, I mean, I, neither of us expected it. Yeah. And, and it just was, it, and it, I really, again, it changed the course and the trajectory of my entire life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Well, let's jump into your motivation now. I feel like we heard bits and pieces of it yeah. in that story, but what gets you up and keeps you going every day? Well, as I said, I, I didn't expect any of this and I didn't plan any of this either. You know, it just all happened. And as it was happening, I, I, kept, I couldn't stop thinking about a writer that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of. Um, his name is Joseph Campbell. I don't know if you've ever read any of his work. He was one of our country's foremost experts on myth and mythology. Um, Bill Moyers did a, a long um, documentary feature about him. He's no longer alive. Actually, the, the characters from some of the Star Wars features that George Lucas used, he used some of Joseph Campbell's work about myth and mythology to create some of those characters. Anyway, Joseph Campbell talks about the journey of life, our life's journey, and how we're all on that journey, no matter what. Some of us realize that, and other of us, other people just go through it and don't really think about, oh yeah, I'm on this journey, and oh yeah, I'm learning this about myself. I mean, it just happens unconsciously. And some of us are a little more conscious of it and a little more aware of it and take it in and try to turn it around and make it something perhaps bigger or more important or more meaningful. And what I saw in, in my story was what Campbell talks about is the mythic journey of identity. We're all on a journey to find out who we are, where we fit in, how we see other people. And in my journey, finding my complete self helped me understand that I can be a bridge. As a biracial individual, I can be a bridge to help people have better conversations, more meaningful conversations, cross race, cross ethnicity. And I felt like, um, as Campbell talks about, I found my bliss. My bliss is I get to go out and open that door for people and to, and to be the catalyst. And so that's, that's what motivates me. Mm, I love that. Your bliss. I think, um, yeah, I think that's something we're all searching for. And when you find it, it's enough to motivate you. Like you don't need money behind it or some right. sort of materialistic thing or even a relational thing. It's like, no, this is simply what I love to do. So that's I right. That's, that's exactly right. And uh, obviously <laughs> money helps. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. but I really think it's so important to find something that you absolutely love and cherish so that when you go and do it every day, you're putting your full self behind it. Absolutely. And, and, and I, and I, again, I, I, I have to pinch myself that I get to do what I get to do for a living. I go, I go around the country and perform a one man show for audiences all, for, of all different kinds uh, and, and most of the time, you know, I'm not doing it in a theater. I'm doing it in an office space or a, or a lecture hall or a, or a convention hall or a, or, or a, or a hotel um, a banquet hall or something like that. I just came back from Texas. I did the show in for um, Mercedes-Benz Financial Institution. We did it in a, they have a group room where they have a bunch of, uh, they could put a bunch of seats and they had their employees come in. And then we had this enriching dialogue following that and people opened up and talked and it was, it was just incredible. So again, um, find your bliss and it will motivate you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm right there with you. And I love the, how uh, unique it is. Yeah. And I think that's for those listening, like your bliss is going to be very unique to you. It's going to be intertwined with your story and the people you want to serve. And you might not even know that those are the people you can and or want to serve right now. You might find out at 35, 45, 55, whatever it may be. So, um, yeah, Michael, I, I love your story. I love it. <laughs> cool, man. Well, let's go ahead and jump into your dreams and goals now. We heard a lot about where you've been and who you are. Tell us about where you're going. What's your vision for the rest of your life and your business? 
rest of my life in my business. Well, as you may have noticed, I have a lot of white hair, so I don't have a lot of, I mean, I have a lot of life. You look like you got 30 years left. (laughs) But I I have sort of a, a, I guess I would say maybe a little more set period than most. Let's, let's put it that way. And what I plan, what I hope to do in the rest of my bliss career period is to take this to a much broader audience. Um, uh, it's one thing for me to go around the country and, you know, uh, and do it one-on-one, uh, you know, one on, you know, a couple of hundred, whatever it might be in a room. Um, but it's another to reach uh, a lot more masses. And, and to be honest with you, where we're at in our country today, I don't need to tell you or, or our listeners, we're in a bad place. We are really disjointed, disunited, disunified, whatever you want to call it. And we need to get back to um, trying to find how we connect. You know, my story is um, very much like a, an academic term or an academic theory that's used called intergroup contact theory. Intergroup contact theory is the proven theory that by sharing our personal stories across majority and minority populations, we can break down the prejudices that exist between us by discovering we have more in common than we have different. That is a fact. And so I am out there trying to encourage people to find those commonalities, discover those commonalities, and then embrace the differences. And again, doing it myself, walking, walking, flying, whatever, across the country. Um, you know, pre-pandemic, I was doing about 60 presentations a year. That's a lot. I'm on the road a lot. Um, it's obviously during the pandemic, it was hard to do that in person. I did a little bit of that virtually, but um, now I'm starting to go back out there again. But I would like to get it out there broader um, and in a bigger way. And I'm trying to, well, one thing I did was we, I, I started a podcast called Incognito, the podcast, which really what I'm trying to do again is to share with people tools that they can use to connect, whether it's in the workplace or your communities or your families or wherever. There's a there's a field that I mentioned early on, which I have become a part of, which I didn't really know anything about of uh, until I started to do this, and it's called the Dur- diversity, equity, and inclusion field. Some people just call it DNI, some people call it DEI. I don't know. There's a lot of different <laughs> acronyms for it, but the DEI space. Um, lots of corporations, lots of educational institutions hire what might be considered a chief diversity officer or a chief diversity administrator or a multicultural director at a school or whatever, and they oversee these diversity and inclusion efforts, which are one, to try to make the space that they're in more diverse, which means bringing in everyone, not just people of color, people with disabilities, Um, different sexual preferences, age differences, um, white, black, Asian, uh, Christian, Muslim, Catholic, all all of a diversity means all. So a diversity officer or director is trying to make that that environment diverse, but also make it inclusive, make everyone feel like they're included in the conversation. And so in that space, Um, There are people who are tasked with doing that. But what I've discovered over the years is that there are many people doing that. You yourself are doing a form of that. Because what you are doing is you are finding connections with people. Whether you call it diversity and inclusion or you just call it um, your podcast, you are doing that. You are absolutely doing. And so what I'm doing on my podcast is I'm interviewing people from all fields, a variety of different fields, restaurant tours. Um, uh, film directors, um, the chief diversity of officer from ICE, um, journalists, um, uh, healers, and talking to them about the tools, the practices, and the methods that they use to connect people. Because I want to try to give us positive tools that we can use wherever we go. And so that's one effort that I'm trying to do to spread the word more. The other is I'm trying to I've just embarked on this. I'm trying to find um, a black uh, television writer or um, what is called a showrunner to develop my story into a limited uh, series, much like you'd watch on Netflix. Maybe there's one or two seasons involved. I don't know how, how you know, the, I have a book. It's a, it's a big story. And there's a lot of things in the book, not just my story again. I want to use my story as the catalyst for viewers of the 
the, the potential TV show to think about how they see themselves and how they look at other people and how we do or don't talk about race. And so I'm, I'm, I'm searching for um, black writers to help me um, make that dream uh, come to fruition. I got you. I got you. Okay, so we got Take Your Act to a Much Broader Audience. One of the ways you want to do that is find a Black show writer that can develop your story into a miniseries. Mm -hmm. um, are there any other dreams or goals that you want to chat about? <laughs> well, this is, I don't know. <laughs> My dream is to live overseas, but that has nothing to do with any of this other stuff. <laughs> oh, man, that's right. It's dreams and goals. Hey, diversity <laughs> and inclusion, right? Like That's all, right. All that's dreams, right. My wife and I are uh, have been to uh, Portugal numerous times. And the last time we went, we actually scouted out cities to live in. And uh, I think we would like to move to Portugal. And one of the reasons, um, I guess one of the reasons I will say that we want to do this is not just because we found the country to be beautiful, but, but, we, but also because we found the people to be beautiful. And um, this is something that I would add to, you know, my tools, my toolbox that I would share with your listeners in terms of um, making connections. One of the best things you can do for, for you is to travel internationally. Now, I realize that for some that that's a dream and, and that's something to strive for. And for others, they have the means to do that. But by traveling internationally, you can learn so much about connecting with other people, about other cultures. And um, I've traveled, I've had the blessing of being able to travel uh, quite a bit internationally. My brother um, lives in Spain and I visit him quite often. And, um, and again, my wife and I have been to Portugal and we'd like to move there. But all of that is to say that all of those things help um, one develop a sense of a greater self, greater than just yourself, that there are a lot more people involved. And so that's one of my dreams. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Well, awesome. Our next question is, yes. if there were one or two people that could help you, uh, that you can meet right now, this could be a specific person or a type of person. I was going to put that pretext in there. That would help you take the next step towards living overseas and moving to Portugal or finding that black show writer to develop your story into a mini series. Who would this person be and how would they help you? I guess one of these people would be the black show writer to develop into a mini series. Right. Well, here's here's that person. He also happened to be our former president. <laughs> I'm talking two presidents ago. Yep. Of course. Um, yep. Barack Obama and his wife, Michelle Obama, have a production deal with Netflix and they have been developing different um, things. He he obviously well, maybe not obviously. I won't say that. I don't know if he's actually dabbled in te television writing. I have read his books, uh, even his most latest book, which the uh, most recent book, which is he's an incredible writer. Um, uh, uh, but I I I think I, I can't tell you how many times over the years that I've shared my story that people have come up to me afterwards and said, "Oh man, you should meet Obama." I'm like, "Yeah, shouldn't we all meet Obama? Come on, that's, <laughs> that's like a crazy understatement, right?" But they talk about my story being similar. I don't really have a similar story to Barack Obama. I mean, other than that, we're both biracial, but I project as you can see your listeners can't as very white and Barack does not. Um, and so my trajectory, my path obviously was very different. I passed most of my life and didn't know it. Yeah. Um, and so um, that was not his case, but we have similarities in, in, in that biracial existence. Um, and of course um, he having, he and his wife having this production deal with Netflix um, perhaps um, we could turn it into a Netflix series. And so um, over the years of having been told that you should meet Barack Obama and then thinking about now being ready to turn this into a, a, a you know, like a mini television series or something or limited series or something, uh, I'm, I'm reaching out. So if he's listening to your podcast or someone who knows him is listening to your podcast, give it a shot because he's the guy. He's the man. There we go. There we go. I love it. And I guess that would also help you move to Portugal. Like, all the dreams alive. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, there we go. What are the most important one or two things that everyday people can do? So Sally at the grocery store to help you accomplish your dreams and goals. 
listen to the podcast, uh, Incognito the Podcast. Again, it's all the the full title is Incognito the Podcast. There's there are a lot of <laughs> incognito podcasts, but not many incognito the podcast. Boy, when you try to find a name, I'm sure you probably had the same discovery as you went to, f- to name your podcast. You know what's funny, Michael? I uh, I'm a really impulsive guy, and so <laughs> I just named it. I was like, living the dream. That's what it's about. That's what the name's going to be. And you would not believe how many podcasts there are named Living the Dream. Well, that's what I mean, right? So it's yeah. difficult, right? Mm-hmm. So so you have to like, you know, t- t- specifically tell people your name. It's Living the Dream, Timothy Douglas. And okay. you have to give me all of that information. So, and, you know, it's funny. I wanted to say Living the Dream. I'm sure someone has said this before. But I have encountered, and, and, and this is such a, kind of an interesting encounter and and maybe i'm just guessing that you have so i have often you know talked to people and say hey how's it going or whatever and 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 someone has said you know live in the dream but they're not actually living the dream they're using that term sarcastically because they're doing something that they aren't that they're not invested in or that isn't their bliss mm-hmm. and to those people who say, who use the term live in the dream, but are using it sarcastically, I challenge those people, your listeners, to find your bliss and actually be living your dream. And so that's what I would say. And getting back to the question that you originally asked was listen to the podcast, incognito the podcast, and share it with other people. You know, rate it, share it. You know as well as I do in the podcast world, the more comments you get, the more shares you get, the more people are listening, the greater the breadth of um, people, the greater the spread. Um, The other thing uh, I can recommend is that people just um, go to the website and check it out. Um, you You can find out all kinds of information at the website. Um, about my tour schedule, about, um, you can look at video there of me performing. <laughs> um, there's video of me being on, on the on media. I was interviewed by Don Lemon on CNN and all kinds of other stuff is all on there and, and go on there and check it out. So there we go. There we go. Well, now we're going to jump into our thriving three. And the first question is favorite book, movie, or podcast? Pick one. Oh man, I knew you were going to ask this question, and I have to. <laughs> I have to preface this by saying i I don't. I don't like to play favorites. Okay, well, how about? Because, I'll, I'll pick something for you. All right, all right, all right. But I, I want to preface it by saying that because there are so many things that I enjoy equally and outstandingly well. Um, I'm gonna name a book. And now I can't even remember the author's name. It just really made a powerful impact on me that I just recently read. It's called How the Word is Passed. And um, I apologize for not remembering this author's um, name, but it is about, he's, um, he's an African-American guy who wrote about. Oh, Clint Smith. Clint Smith. Do you know Clint Smith? Wait. He's, he's a poet. And a writer. I think he went to my school. Oh, what school? Davidson College. Oh, he may have. Yeah, I think he did actually. I yeah. Think he no, he came. He came and spoke. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Davidson College, 2010. I graduated uh, in 2021, so uh-huh. I think we overlapped or anything. But he's come and spoken at Davidson College many times. Well, have you read his book? I haven't read that book. I read one of his books. Well, I, I can't say enough about that book, How the Word is Passed. He, he, I, I heard him talk on a couple of different podcasts. And um, the book is about him traveling across the country to these different sites in America that have historical significance um, and uh, for slavery. And how America has either ignored or um, glossed over what's happened there. You know, he goes to a plantation. He goes to uh, Monticello or Jefferson's um, um, a house. He goes to um, Angola in um, uh, Louisiana. He goes to New York City. And, uh, he, and he talks about um, in really beautiful prose, again, because he's a poet and he has a really beautiful way of framing his sentences um, about these places in a way that's not um, 
not poking you in the face, not, um, I mean, he's talking about some very sensitive issues, which for, and I will say this, oftentimes I find that a lot of white people, and this is, I'm not trying to condemn, I'm obviously I'm half white, so I'm not trying to condemn white. This is what Obama had the same problem, remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the same problem, I'm not Obama, but, uh, but I, I'm not trying to condemn white people, but oftentimes it can be difficult for white people to, um, to engage or to read things that, that they feel might put them on the defensive. And I'll, and I'll mention a couple of things like um, uh, Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility. A lot of white people have a difficult time with that book. And I get it, I've read it. It's, it, it's, it's hard, it's in your face. Ibrahim um, Kinde's, Dr. Ibrahim Kinde's, and I've spoken on a panel with him. Uh, people have problems with his, his books because it's really in your face, but it's really, really real stuff and important stuff. But Clint Smith's book really speaks to people in a really rich way. And I'm gonna add one other book on this. I know you said one favorite, <laughs> but, um, but um, uh, uh, Isabella Wilkerson wrote a book called The Warmth of Other Sons, which is also an absolutely beautiful book about the great migration from South to North of black people. And it's also outstanding, so. Gotcha, all good. You can get to okay. it, man, all <laughs> not right. a problem. Right. Really cool on that Clint Smith connection. It's actually, I never yeah. read one of his books. I heard him perform his poetry. Oh, wow. I would love to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. I went to a poetry performance he had at Davidson College and oh. it was great. It was powerful. I loved it. Well, get his book, really. I can't recommend it enough. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Our next question is, one way you like to take care of yourself? Listening to jazz on vinyl. You know, that is on brand, I will say. Yeah? Yep. I, wow. I Like, usually if somebody said something like that, I'd be like, wow, that's a really surprising answer. But I feel like you would listen to jazz on vinyl, and it's not a bad thing. Come on, man. There is nothing finer than jazz on vinyl. <laughs> well, there's nothing finer than music on vinyl, but uh, but I, I'm kind of obsessed with it. it there's, it's just... I mean, I've always really appreciated jazz music, but I lately in the last 10 years i've just really grown to I, I i've got a great stereo system and i can just sit and listen not read anything else not that's the best way to listen to vinyl is to have your speakers pointed right at you to put on a nice you know album i could name dozens of people but i won't go into that but um, and just sit and listen. And you, you, you gain a, an incredible appreciation mm. for, for the art form. It's, it's just amazing. Yep. That refreshes me. That regenerates me. I love it. I love it. And what is one action step you can take right now or continue to take if you're already doing it to meet Barack Obama and get your story as a Netflix special? Well, I'm taking it right now. I'm talking to you. I'm, I'm assuming you know him. So I, I mean, I don't, know any, I don't know any different. So I'm yeah. just assuming you know him. So I'm taking that step right now. Um, there we go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's, I mean, that's the obvious thing, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm out there every day trying to spread the word, spread the good word. And, and again, like I said, I was in Fort Worth yesterday. I'll be, I'm doing a presentation here in Chicago on Monday for an insurance uh, conference. Uh, next month, I'm going to do some work with Boeing. Boeing used to be a, an, an enormous client of mine. I've, I've been to sites of theirs all across the country. Um, I'm going out to Everett. They're, they have an enormous plant out there, 35,000 people. It's like a city unto, unto itself. I'm going out there to do some, some uh, presentations for them. So every day I'm out there trying to tell my story and trying to engage people and trying to let them know, spread the word. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Do you think there is a, um, a main guy on his secret service detail that you could get close to that can make the introduction. I try to think of people who are like one to two degrees of separation away that are yeah. easier to get to. So like, um, you know, Elon Musk might be really hard to get to, but Elon Musk's cousin's son might be really easy to get to who then has like a direct line to Elon Musk. You know what I mean? And so it's like, is there like a secret service agent or like a friend of his daughter or something like that? The father of his daughter's friend, whatever it may be. Um, 
I just feel like there's somebody who's kind of casual who talks to Barack on a regular basis. And I think you can get to that person. You just have to figure out who it is. First of all, stay away from Elon Musk. I'm just going to say, I can't. I'm (laughs) staying stay away from that guy. He's nuts. Yeah, (laughs) he makes a great car, but he's not. Anyway, we don't need to go off that. I actually had some indirect routes to um, President Obama. One was a former, well, not a former, one of the attorneys who represented him in his book deals um, was a former student of a former teacher of mine. And my teacher made an introduction um, to the attorney and the attorney just like shot me down like nobody's business. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> and I was like, okay, all right, whatever. And then um, somebody else told me that they knew somebody who knew him and they were going to talk to them and they did and then nothing ever came of it. So I've had some weird, you know, yeah. gentle things, but I'm, I'm still looking. So yeah. people reach out to me. I'm easy to find. Let me know if you know someone who knows someone who knows someone who knows someone. I'm happy to follow that path. Mm, there we go. There we go. Keep on networking. Keep on getting on yeah, podcasts right. and just putting it out there. Right. All right. Well, now we have a series of questions that we're going to ask you. This used to just be one question. But okay. now it's a series. Okay. And um, do I put the... It's going to be a lot of pretext in this. So stick with me, okay? Okay. And um, honest answers, just authentic answers. If, if you don't know, say you don't know, and that's fine. I'm nothing but authentic. There we go. Okay. So a lot of people have come on the show, and they've said that the catalyst that helps people change from having a fixed mindset, not willing to accept help, and not willing to accept change to having a growth mindset, being willing to accept help and being willing to accept change, the catalyst that causes that is a personal choice that happens after either extreme inspiration or extreme desperation. Do you agree with that? Disagree? Anything to add or subtract? <laughs> silence. <laughs> it's one thing uh, podcast hosts or radio hosts hate is, is radio silence. Um, I, uh, I guess I would agree with that pretty much, yeah. 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 Okay. I feel that there are some, there can be some nuances. Yeah. I think there's absolutely, there's definitely some nuance in there. It's, it's hard to make an absolute on something like that. Something that's so monumental, but I would say in general, I agree with that. Yeah. There we go. There we go. And so given that same amount of extreme inspiration or desperation, why do you think some people make the choice to change and others don't? Well, again, there's a lot of, there would be a lot of different reasons for a lot of different people. Some people are stuck and they don't know they're stuck. Some people um, have a lot of baggage. Um, I spent, listen, I'm not afraid to admit it's in my memoir. I've I've spent years in therapy. Um, I, I was definitely stuck. I think, you know, obviously in relationship to this question, this event took place in my life, but then even when that event took place in my life, it took me another really 10 years to really get that thing on board and, and started up and, and writing and moving and moving it forward. So um, a lot of therapy helped with that. Uh, talking to someone, talking to a lot of people can help. Um, I, I wouldn't just, uh, sometimes I wouldn't just limit it to one person, although um, uh, finding a good therapist can be difficult as well. So um, I think there's a lot of different reasons for why people remain stuck and why people move forward. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell writes a lot about this. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Um, And now, of course, I can't remember the titles of his books, but that's what he writes about. He specifically writes about the differences between people who who are ingenious and move forward and some who are ingenious and just can't move forward. And some of that actually happens um, because of luck. Um, And some of that happens... Um, because of the marketplace. Look, I think <laughs> I spent, I don't know how many years out in Hollywood auditioning for everything I could get my hands on. Not very many auditions because it's very difficult to get auditions for some people and it was difficult for me. But I think I'm a very talented actor and I know a lot of really talented actors who auditioned and auditioned and auditioned and were never able to get um, somewhere and it didn't have anything to do with their talent. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that's why I asked the question. It's yeah, honestly, absolutely. a mystery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, right. There we go. There we go. 
while some people need a small amount of desperation or inspiration to change, and then others need a larger, more consistent amount. What do you think establishes that breaking point, that threshold, and can it be influenced? Oh, man, that's people answer this question for you. You ask this question, people answer this. Yeah, yeah. I keep them as a surprise because I don't want people to like do a bunch of research. I kind of just want the authentic off the dome answers. So I'm going to I have to ask you to repeat it because it's a it's a very thought provoking question. and I'm not sure exactly. Yeah, please, if you would. Yeah. So some people need a small amount of desperation or inspiration to change and others need a larger, more consistent amount of inspiration or desperation to change. What do you think establishes that threshold and can it be influenced? Mm. I, I guess I'm going to say that I don't feel that there's an overriding, um, a single answer to that question, to those questions, that query. Um, I think it's different for everybody. Um, we all come from different places, different spaces, um, different experiences, different races, different sexual orientations, all different kinds of things, which um, create um, different reactions and different ways in which we respond to things and different ways in which we carry out things. I, I, one, of my, one of the tools that I use in the work that I do um, is uh, a tool that I talk about. We, we have to recognize that there isn't one way to have a conversation about race and identity. If there was one way to do it, that would make it a lot easier, right? I mean, that w we, we rarely have the conversation to begin with. So if there was one way to have that conversation, wouldn't that make it a lot easier? If it was A plus B equals C, we could all go, oh, yeah, we're going to have that conversation. Okay, here we go. A plus B equals C. But it's, it, it's not. There's no formula. It's not math. It's not science. Um, we each bring a different experience of race and identity to the table. And therefore, that means it's going to be messy. And we're each going to have different ways in which we express ourselves about, I'm just using the topic of race right now. Yep. And so that's why it, it, there isn't one way to do it. And we need to recognize that. And I guess I would say the same about your general question. Um, I'm not sure that there's one way that is going to affect the way that people respond to impetus and the way that they carry it out. Gotcha. Gotcha. I feel that. I feel that. Do you yeah. think... While there isn't one way, there is um, a way that that threshold can be influenced. Or would you say once people are stuck, they're kind of stuck with that threshold? No, I think people, look, there, a lot of people say, uh, uh, what do you say? You can't teach a, uh, an old dog new tricks. I guess that's the cliche. Yeah. Um, I don't believe that. I, I believe that you can. And uh, for some, it's harder. For some, it's a lot harder to teach, and for some, it's it's easier. And for some, it's a it's a it's a it's a monumental experience in their life, and they go, oh, the the light clicks on, and they go, wow, get it now, I get it now. And for others, it has to be pounded into them until they like, oh, wow, this hurts, but I get it, you know. So, yeah. I I definitely believe that people can change. There we go. There we go. All righty. Well, we got one last question. Yes. <clears throat> So for this question, I want you to kind of keep this person in mind. Think of somebody, you don't have to think of somebody in your life, just think of this person, a persona that has a fixed mindset, not willing to accept help, not willing to accept change. Keep them in mind as I ask. So in Atomic Habits, James Clear talks about the four laws of changing your behavior. He says the laws are to make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, and make it satisfying. With that context in mind, and the person I told you to think of earlier, how can we create an environment for that person that makes it more obvious, more attractive, more easy, and more satisfying for that person to make the choice that will change their life? So what can we do to create that environment for that person? Well, I think... <laughs> I guess the pretext is also needed. This isn't intended to change people but simply to create an environment where people feel safe to change, if that makes sense. Yeah. Sometimes it's not about the safety though. Sometimes it's about their unwillingness. Yeah. Um, sometimes it is safety. Sometimes it's unwillingness. Sometimes it's um, other factors. I, I, I guess I would say, and this is something that I practice and or try to practice look, we all try to practice certain things and we all fall down oh, yeah. and, and we got to get back up. And that's, I guess what I would say. 
is you got to get back up. And I guess I would say that for me, um, trying to be positive and trying to find positives within a situation and reinforce those things with this said person um, are the things that have helped me in the past. Um, it's not always going to work. It's and, and like, and you preface this by saying we're, we're not necessarily going to be, be successful in changing that person. But I think um, being really positive, giving them positive um, feedback and modeling positive behaviors um, and outcomes is, is the way to go about doing it. Mm. There we go. I love yeah. it. Well, Michael, yeah. is there anything else you want to chat about before we sign off? <laughs> uh, I, I've, I've taken up a lot of your time and a lot of your listeners time. I don't know. I, I, I started off by sharing a story for about 30 minutes or so. <laughs> I'm sure that kind of overwhelmed people. I don't, I don't really, it's really been delightful to speak with you. I didn't, I had, I had no idea what this is going to be like and, and, and how we were going to, I mean, I know you, you sent some questions to me beforehand and I looked them over and, and, uh, and in some ways I just thought, well, you know, I can wing this. I, I, I know who I am. I know my story and I'm, I'm happy to uh, engage um, Tim in some really great conversation. And that's what we've had today. And I appreciate you. Absolutely. I appreciate you coming on and telling your story. Yeah. Thank you very much. Awesome. Well, there we go. And if you guys are listening to this and you loved what Michael had to say, go ahead and reach out to him. If you happen to know Obama or Obama's secret service detail or <laughs> Obama's daughter's friend's dad, Go ahead and introduce them <laughs> to Michael. <laughs> As we always ask, go ahead and shoot this podcast to one to three people you know need to hear this message. Give us a five-star review on iTunes. Also, Michael's links to his podcast, his website, will be in the show notes, so check those out. And on that note, we're out. Guys, thanks for listening. Make sure to reach out to our guests and help them accomplish their dreams and goals if you resonated with them. If you're looking for any intentional masterminds or one-on-one -on -one coaching to accomplish your dreams and goals, make sure to check out the website, workwithtimmydouglas.com, and contact me either there or on social media. That's all I got. Have a blessed day.